Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome back, everybody, to another Basement Binge episode. And welcome to the beginning of Nolan November, something that I am extremely excited about. Christopher Nolan is a director who me and many individuals, hopefully you listening, really love. His films are fantastic to enjoy. So ever since The Basement Binge was a thing, I've wanted to review his films consecutively and consider that the the binge. I know that we're not going through all of his films. That's sadly just in the interest of time and how busy I am with work and trying to fit all of them in in November. I was just not able to get to his first three films following Memento and Insomnia. Those are all three incredible films. If you haven't seen them, definitely check them out. In the interest of time, though, I'm just not going to be able to get to those. So starting with The Prestige, I know that technically next in his filmography is Batman Begins, but we're going to do the Batman trilogy in one smooth go. So we're starting with The Prestige, then we'll get to the Batman trilogy. Anyway, let's get into the review here. Thank you so much for everybody who contributed on social media to this episode. If you want to do that, Look in the show notes, or you can just follow me at The Basement Binge on Instagram and TikTok. You can contribute to these episodes as well. Let's get started with Two Cents. The very first segment, which is completely spoiler-free. So if you haven't seen this film and you are listening to this episode, I, I guarantee this is a film that is better not spoiled at all. You want to know n- nothing about this film. So I'm going to keep this as spoiler-free as I can, which means it's going to be a very, very short Two Cents. In an interview promoting Dunkirk, Christopher Nolan said something really, really interesting. He said, I want to reinvent expectations. What are the conditions of a blockbuster? Can I show them something they haven't seen before while still working within those pre-established conventions? And I thought that was a perfect quote for what happens here in The Prestige because that's done perfectly. In these conventions of filmmaking, particularly filmmaking about magic, we know how cuts work. We, we know how things can be hidden. We know how things aren't real. That's why stage magic is really hard to capture in film. But no one uses our understanding of that against us, giving us a magic trick in and of itself throughout the film. Things that you... Yeah, actually, I'm not going to say that. I don't want to spoil anything. It's an interesting film because of that, because of that magic trick that he he creates. The second you finish the film, you immediately want to watch it again because you want to see it with new perspective. It's a fantastic film to rewatch. It's a really unique film. You know, it's one of those films that I think especially defined what we call in pop culture a Christopher Nolan film. I think this of his films is kind of the first where that's the way you have to describe it. As an example, the editing here includes 146 time jump cuts in which the next shot either flashes back or skips ahead in another time period of the storyline. That averages out to almost one timeline jump per minute of the movie. That's a lot. It, it took everything up a, a level. From following, we had kind of two layers of time. In Memento, we had three layers of time. Here in The Prestige, we get up to four layers of time, and it's intense. 
it, it really kind of defines that nature of Christopher Nolan that we've all come to love. While also being really unique, I feel like this is his most unique film. And I mean, every single one of his films are really unique. And, and while they take things from the other, they really have so many intrinsic qualities. But this one I feel like is, is the most that way. It's interesting this because so on Instagram, two of the individuals voted for this as their favorite Christopher Nolan movie, including Ali, who was on the Nightmare Before Christmas episode, who is not a huge fan of Christopher Nolan's. All the other the polls and things that about Christopher Nolan, he was voting against. But this film he, he expressed was one that he, he actually liked. And so it's while it has those qualities of a Christopher Nolan movie, it's also very unique in how it's, it's such a different story than you would expect. It, it it's hard to say anything more. I, I really want to keep this as spoiler-free as possible. So let me just kind of, if I haven't sold you on just the idea of the film, it, it's about two magicians competing each other to be the best magician. And the way that that story and that competition between the two of them is slowly revealed throughout time and the intense level of competition that they actually went to while also revealing a magic trick in and of itself throughout the film and within the narrative, it it's incredibly impressive. It's so interesting how I said at the beginning how Christopher Nolan uses things against us. For example, this isn't spoiling anything. Hugh Jackman, at one point in, in part of his magic act, he needs a double, right? Somebody who looks like him that he can use in his act. And so they go in the story, they go and get this guy, his name's Roots, who is Hugh Jackman. So Hugh Jackman is playing two characters for a short time in the film, which one is a double of his other character, if that makes sense. And it's interesting to see because there's this moment where they kind of look at each other and the camera spins around them and, and we know that they're both Hugh Jackman and so we know that they're not there in person. We know it isn't real. But it feels new and, and so you allow yourself to experience it as if it is real. And both the, the performance that Hugh Jackman gives in that moment is phenomenal as two individuals but also the way that the camera moves and the edit really allows something like that to just flow so well. And it's so simple. It's interesting that that's something I can explain about the movie without really spoiling anything while still kind of expressing the magic of the film. It's incredible. I can't say more spoiler-free, so let me just hit on some other things that I really enjoy about the film that don't ruin it. Michael Caine, he's in this movie. Probably guess that. It's a Christopher Nolan movie. And his performance here is genuinely one of my favorites. It's, it's nothing like Alfred in the Batman films. It's a, so much looser and tons of fun, and has a lot of energy. I love Michael Caine in this film. The film in and of itself, also just watching it, makes me, to a larger extent than I already did, respect precise storytelling. Because when it's done right, like in this film, it's absolutely captivating. But that's really all I can say without spoilers. So if you haven't seen this film, get out of here, go watch the movie, what are you waiting for? And then come back to the episode and enjoy the rest. So that's all you're going to get in two cents. Let's move on to the next segment, Pick Your Poison. Before we do that, I like always, I just have a little bit of announcement here. Like I mentioned at the beginning, you can follow me in social media at The Basement Binge, particularly on Instagram, the entire month of Nolan November. I'm going to be putting tons of polls and things out there on my Instagram to get your contribution to these episodes, to get your feedback about Christopher Nolan and the particular episode that I'm doing. So thank you to everyone who contributed and was active on the social media polls. That was a ton of fun. If you want to be involved in that, go check out The Basement Binge on Instagram. You can also follow me on TikTok. I'm going to be producing tons of fun content all around Christopher Nolan. It's 
it's been really rejuvenating for me to just have a lot of fun in things that I'm creating. So if you want to see any of that, follow me on social media. If you want to contribute, check me out on Instagram. Additionally, on social media and on Instagram, if you are interested, every single month, I have three free screen passes that I can give away through my Movies Anywhere account. Sadly, it's only for individuals here in the U.S. I'm working on ways to share with international listeners, but at least here in the U.S., every month I have three screen passes. They're absolutely useless to me unless I share them. It's just something that Movies Anywhere does where of select films in my digital film collection, every month I can share three of them. So if, you, if you're interested, you can check out the list on my Instagram, see where they are. Let me know if you'd be interested in a screen pass. If I have one for the month, I'll totally share it with you. Anyway, that's enough about that. If you want to contribute your own content to Noel November, simply just use the hashtag Noel November. I'd love to see it. That's enough about that. As always, please leave a review on podchaser.com slash the basement binge or just search for the basement binge on podchaser. Of course, listed in the show notes. Reviews always help out the show. Let's move on to the next segment here. Pick your poison. Pick your poison, if you don't know, is the rating scale here at the basement binge. Instead of giving it a percentage or giving it stars or whatever, it is all based on how I would choose to interact with this film after watching it. Is this a bingeable film, so to speak? And there's four options, four grades you can give it, if you will. Bottom, worst, never watched again. That's very straightforward, very self-explanatory. Above that is to stream it, which means it's on a streaming service you're already paying for. You're simply just looking for something to watch. There's a hole in your content consumption and you're just wanting something to fill that void, so to speak. That's what stream it means. You'd be willing to click on it as you're browsing through whatever you're browsing through. Above that is to rent it digitally, Redbox, however you choose to rent it. In the right setting, you'd be willing to pay a few dollars to be able to watch it. Top of the list, you probably guess it, is to buy it, whether that's digitally or like a Blu-ray or DVD, to buy it, watch it as many times as you can, etc., etc. So for me, if you didn't guess already, this is absolutely a buy. One, I'm a huge fan of Christopher Nolan, and I really enjoy collecting physical media, so naturally I'm going to collect his films. But more than that, this is a film that deserves re-watching. I think it's not on the Blu-ray cover. I think it used to be on the DVD cover. It used to say something like, Something about you'll want to watch it again or, or needing to rewatch it again. I should have looked it up. I don't remember it. It was only on the DVD that I used to check out from the library. I've never found the DVD case anywhere else. But it was a genuine printed DVD case that said something about wanting to watch the film again after seeing it. And, and it's so true. This is a film that just in and of itself from what the film presents, even not just my love for Christopher Nolan or for the actors involved, just in the film and the way that it tells the story is one that deserves a rewatch. Even years later, as I've rewatched it multiple times before, coming back to it is just as rewarding. So with that in mind, let's get into the next segment, Live Up, and where I express my expectations for the film and if it was able to live up to them, particularly this time around with it being a rewatch. The way that the story between Borden and Angier is told is really unique. The magic of the film is that twist and how that twist is slowly revealed and how you, maybe you can catch on to it, maybe you can but either way, you know at the end, and so coming back is more rewarding. I remember the first time I saw this movie, I was in a film class in high school, and it was just one um, semester long. So the semester before, my friend had taken the class, and I was about to take it the next semester, and he kept telling me about like the prestige, the prestige, but the prestige. He's like, you got to watch it. And I was like, well, didn't you see it in film? I was like, okay, I'm going to wait till I see it in, in film class. I, I wanted to wait. And I remember sitting there in that weird auditorium classroom we had. I remember exactly where I saw I sat. Had no friends, no one sat next to me. Anyway, I remember sitting there just having my mind blown at what I was watching. I remember like three seconds before it was revealed, 
probably more like three minutes, I figured out what the film was portraying and I just, my jaw dropped. And then, then to be right about it was also exciting. And that's not to say anything about myself. It was just, I was blown away in the way that the film could do that and that it could have a twist that's so intense, but could also tell the story so completely without needing the twist, but could on top of that also tell a story that foreshadowed the twist that if you were watching closely, you might be able to figure it out. I I just, I couldn't imagine that. I I couldn't, it, it, it was mind blowing for many reasons, way more than just the twist, but the level of craftsmanship that goes into creating a twist to this extent to revealing it in the way that Christopher Nolan did absolutely blew my mind. This film has had a lasting impression on me. I've revisited before. I remember telling my friends and family, my brother, hey, you got to watch this movie. We checked it out from the library. We watched it. He wanted to watch it a bunch. We told his friend about it. He watched it with us. Like, we, I just couldn't get enough of it. So years later, coming back to it, it has this, this legacy of being that movie. And what is it going to be like to come back to that? Now that I have more experience, now that I have more of a critical eye, can that twist and the way the twist is crafted still be rewarding? And before I answer that question, I want to bring something up about the film that really does surprise me every single time I watch it. A similar film that I, for some reason in my brain, these two are cataloged together is the film Now You See Me. Even though it came out years later, I saw them at similar times in my life. Both had a twist in them. Both are about magic. And the second now, or now you see me, I remember I rewatched it once and it just was boring. It wasn't rewarding in any way. Both the magic and the twist felt cheap. And so it doesn't have lasting value. So there's a little bit of a worry that maybe that is what's going to happen with the prestige is that my more critical eye, my, my greater understanding, now that I know what the film is about, those things are going to feel cheap. And then while researching the film, preparing for the episode, I found out that this movie is included on the 1001 movies you must see before you die list. This film had a high bar to clear already through my own expectations and thoughts for the films. And then just the legacy that it has in and of itself being included on that list. The bar's even higher now. Knowing all of that and rewatching it, I was still just as enthralled. I enjoyed it just as much. The twist was just as powerful. The foreshadowing was just as exciting. The unraveling of the story was just as interesting. Everything about it was to the same caliber that it had before but also to a higher caliber. Rewatching it, I was excited to extract newer ideas, to see what things I might have missed before. What hints did I miss? What depths to these characters and their motivations did I miss? While also trying to find the message in and of it all, of course, preparing for the segment fall in here, but also why? Why this story? Why this twist? I don't think that this was made just for the sake of having a good twist and being like, hey, gotcha, you didn't see coming that they were twins. You know, like that it feels like it, there's more than that to it. And I, I wanted to believe that there was something there. And so I was excited to search for it. What can be said about our lives and about our existence through this film? What can I extract from it to talk about and to think about? I was very excited for that on top of, of course, like I already mentioned, seeing the new details within the story that I may have missed. It's a a great film to rewatch for that. It makes the film just as captivating every single time because you you feel like there's more there that you haven't seen at all already. And it was also interesting this time around, again, knowing the twist, of course, knowing what was coming and how that made everything that I was watching better. Already knowing 
how the story plays out, what really happens. Preemptively knowing, but also retroactively understanding as you watch the film, whether it's for the first time or on a rewatch, what you see at the end, what is revealed to you about Borden and Angiers and the doubles that they both have and the sacrifices that they have both made and the ways that neither of them really expected things to happen never contradicts what you saw before. In fact, it adds to it. Even on a rewatch, it's rich knowing, hey, Borden is a twin. Angiers is going to become obsessed and is going to do everything to try and duplicate him. They're going to outplay each other. And Angier gets to the point that he wants to put Borden uh, away. He, he wants to kill him, sadly, because he wants his trick. He wants to prove that he's a better magician. And so knowing all that and watching how that was there throughout the entire film, it's just incredible, incredibly well-crafted. Some other things I want to talk about here in Live Up that it were really interesting to see the second time around was particularly with the character of Tesla. I always thought that he was kind of a unique character and I thought, well, why is he getting involved? What's he have to do with it? Uh, of course, learning that, well, one, it's because how it was written in the book. Two, also just knowing more about Tesla this time around. He's an individual that just has a great sense of mystery around him. And because of that, he makes a great tangential character, somebody who is important and significant to the story, but isn't the main character. I think because one Tesla is just a difficult individual to capture and to portray, but the way that he invigorates the story and adds to it and adds newness to it and to the events of these individuals is, is perfect. I also think that it adds a, a, a layer here and kind of the motif that it has through the character of Borden and also through Tesla, that the two of them have absolute understanding, complete understanding of their given field or given world that they've invested themselves in, but don't really know how to channel it. They don't really know the politics or the marketing or the personalization or the showmanship behind it. And so this great intellect, this great trick is a little bit wasted. So there's these increased capacities that they have without the ability to make it sustainable, make it incorporatable into people's lives, if that makes any sense, makes outsiders afraid of it and wanting to take it away from them. It's very, very interesting how I, that time around, yeah, I think, before I was kind of under the impression Tesla is a weird character, why did they include him in the movie? This time around, I think, wow, what a fantastic character. He's, he's great in the film. And then the last thing to talk about and live up here, like I mentioned, one of the most exciting things about rewatching the film, particularly this time around, is that I would like to look for new ideas. What did I miss before? And so the new thing that I pulled out this time, every time I'm left thinking about something new within the story, this time around, it all revolves around Sarah. Did Sarah actually know? Towards the end of her part in the story, she expresses to Borden, I know what you are. Does she actually know? Or did she think he was crazy? Either way, she couldn't tell anyone. No wonder she had to take her life. It's Victorian London. Who's going to believe her? She's a woman. I mean, I got nothing against women, but at that time, they don't have credibility. So does she know? I don't know. Which is really interesting as I did research into this film, because that actually isn't a part of the script. Her line, I know what you are, is not at all in the script. Rebecca Hall, who plays Sarah, she felt she just kind of like blurted out and then felt tell her terrible afterwards that she uh, had said that thinking that she might have given away the ending. And it's interesting because if she doesn't just say it once, I think maybe that kind of influenced the story. And I think it's phenomenal, but I don't know the answer. 
does she know or does she not? What does she know? I'm not sure. And it's interesting to think about those things. See, there we go. Now I'm already excited to watch it again to look for new things. Let's move on from live up though and get into the binge points here, which is going to be interesting. This is going to be fun. To start out the binge points here, if you don't know, these are Easter eggs, details, trivia, hidden things, just fun details to mention about the film. Just, I don't know, other things that may not fit in the other segments that I just want to mention. And I started off, I want to answer some of the questions that I was asking on Instagram. I never gave my answer. So if you're listening, then you'll get the answer. The first question, in The Prestige, who is the main character? Borden, who's played by Bale, or Angier, who's played by Hugh Jackman. 75% of people who voted voted for Angier as the main character. And I agree, but I also completely disagree. I think that they share the role of main character. While the the reveal of obsession and the destruction of his life is more on Angier, and he feels more like the instigator of that than anything, so it makes him kind of the main character in that way, it also shows the commitment and sacrifice of Borden. And the loss of both of their lives at different ends and two different means and two different ends, oh, that was interesting, they, they both lose their lives consistently, more times than they have the ability to, and I think that they share the role of main character. Next question, who is the greater magician, the professor or Borden, or the great Danton and Jir? The poll is tied at 50-50, but I'm going to put my stake firmly in what the film expresses Borden. He is a better magician, a horrible showman. He's not the greatest showman. But okay, that was cheesy. I'll see myself out. All right, next question. Who's to blame? Alfred Borden or Robert Angier? 60% of people think that Robert Angier is to blame. I agree. While Alfred does have blame in this, he has responsibility. If he had to pin it on one individual, it would be Robert Angier. He just couldn't let it go. Alfred just wanted to be a great magician. He put in deep sacrifice that a lot of us, I don't think, can understand. And his life was just filled with loss because of it. Whether that's his fault or the fault of horrible things happening to him or the combination of both and also his ability to not leave Angier alone. So yes, he has blame, but it started with more things happening to him than him making things happen. So those are the only questions I have. Again, if you want to be involved in those for the next episode, like the one I'm about to put up for Batman Begins, go follow The Basement Binge at The Basement Binge on Instagram, also linked in the show notes. Let's get into the other bench points here. And these bench points that I want to have here are more into the reveal and how it's continually foreshadowed throughout the film, which I think is fantastic to watch. And I'm sure I missed tons of them. I was doing my best to both watch the film and try and write things down. And that's always difficult. Anyway, let's first talk about the twins, Borden and Fallon, Alfred, whatever you want to call them. It's interesting how consistently there's hints that it is unique here. And when you know it's, it's really fun to try and catch... How is it revealed that this is two individuals, two unique individuals trying to be the same person? At the beginning of the film, he mentions that he can't afford a ticket to go see the Chinaman perform. It's because it's two people living off one individual's wage. Of course, Sarah's nephew asking, where's his brother? And Alfred's inability to respond. When Sarah tells him that he's pregnant, he says, right before that, She's worried about the cost of things. Well, how are we going to pay him? He says, I don't know. I'll share half my food with him. Probably what he's done for years. Then when she tells him that he's pregnant, he says, oh, we should have told Fallon. We're having a baby. You can tell in that moment that that is the twin who does not love Sarah. 
And Fallon, who just walked away, is the one who is actually having a baby. Then consistently throughout the film, whether it's in moments of himself or the way that the character portrays it or in the way that Angier recognizes it and writes about it in the journal, he's consistently arguing with himself one half versus the other. Always being contradictory, always wanting different things. One wanting to be with the family and loving them, the other one railing against them and wanting freedom. One loving Olivia, one loving Sarah. Very competing ideas. Other great hints, and this is one of my favorite ones. His hand, the way that his fingers are broken. At one point, it says, when Sarah's cleaning up, she says, I don't understand how it can be bleeding against us. It's as bad as the day it happened. It's because it happened again. It is as bad as the day it happened because it's the second thing. Then we have the incredible line of Sarah where she, where she mentions some days he loves him, other days he doesn't. Also how Fallon always leaves. We, we get glimpses of him, but he, he, he lives in the shadows and that's intended. It's, I don't think that it was just used as like a camera trick so they didn't have to try and get Christian Bale in the same scene twice. I think it m- matches the character really well. And this time around, I noticed this more. When whichever version of the twin it is goes to the funeral and says, I don't know, to the question, which not did you tie? It's true. And I, that never occurred to me before that he genuinely doesn't know. Something else that I think is, re- is really phenomenal about this, more than just lines or hints through the characters, is the way that the film portrays this. Borden is committed to his trick to the point where it is no longer an illusion. It is truly two individuals living one life. And the film sticks to that natural feeling, both with the look and sound of everything, from the sound design to the cinematography, it's all capturing reality. It's fantastic the way it portrays that subtly. One other binge point here about Borden that doesn't really have to do with the reveal of him being a twin, but I do think is really great characterization is that he consistently covers his hand, whether he's wearing a glove or when um, Olivia comes into the shop for the first time, he wraps his hand in like a a cloth of some kind. And while that works great for the production and them not having to constantly edit his fingers out of the frame, it also really works well for the character that that's something that he hides, but he doesn't start to show it until Olivia advises him to. Very interesting. So now let's move on to Angier. Obviously he's not a twin. We know that. That's not the twist that he's coming. There's not so much a twist with him as so much there is just a reveal of the obsession that, that takes over for him. So how is that hinted at throughout the film? And, and just his entire character. One of the first things we see about him is that he's, he wants to be a magician, but he's not willing to believe that this old Chinaman they go see would be devoted to something, to an act with their whole life. He doesn't get it that it's always a performance and how that allows Borden to be a better, better magician and how that belief limits him and allows Borden to be a better magician, but how Angier consistently has more showmanship and that's how he outdoes Borden. But there's also just hints of other things. You know, there's a scene when we see, well, anytime, not just that one time, anytime we see Angier perform his transporting man, the one where he falls in the water and the, he's electrified the, the actual duplication every time as he's about to perform the act, you see the seriousness in him. He is preparing for his death, which is dark, but and terrible. He, he takes off his wedding ring, gives it to his assistant. And you can see like a deep purpose and a deep meditation that this is what he's about to go do. 
And he doesn't know, is he going to be the one in the box or the one in the prestige? And I don't have the answer to that question. I think maybe he's both. But every single time, he doesn't know. Because when he's duplicated, he doesn't know. So every time, it's a new experience. Every time, it's just as dreadful. And that little performance we have, as he just stands there with his eyes closed, focused, is fantastic. Beyond that, we also get hints, you know, like all of his stagehands are blind. Clearly, there's something that we're not meant to see. While other things are revealed, like the trapdoor, we're meant to see that he's falling through the trapdoor. We, we see it clearly multiple times. Also, you, you can tell that he's doing this to make Borden figure it out. And then there's one last hint to just his entire arc. All of these haven't really been hits to his entire story, but this I thought was just an incredible detail that I, I don't know how people come up with this. It amazes me. So Root, his double, right? Angier's double, announces that in his acting career, he has played Faust and Caesar in the past. Both of those characters were destroyed by their own ambition, as is Angier. And the way that Hugh Jackman plays both Root and Angier is phenomenal. I absolutely love that moment, especially the way he plays Root and, and how absolutely different it is than Angier and how he's able to play both his phenomenal performance, but also that one line and, and what it shows for the character of Angier. Phenomenal stuff. Let's talk about some other binge points here, though. Let's move away from the characters. Let's talk about the cinematography. I didn't know this until researching. This film was actually nominated for an Oscar in cinematography. Why it also wasn't no- nominated for adapted screenplay, I don't know. But let's just talk about the cinematography. I was surprised by that because I didn't remember the cinematography being really striking. I don't, I didn't, that wasn't something that I really remember about the film. And even trying to find images, get good images to post on Instagram was really hard. There wasn't, there's not those captivating, you know, those, there's not those Instagram images. And so I was surprised what this was nominated for an Oscar, especially when I went and looked at what year it was nominated for. This was the same year that Children of Men and then ultimately the cinematography winner, Pan's Labyrinth were nominated. Those are two remarkably impressive films in regards to cinematography. And you're saying that this film is up there with them? Why? And so it was interesting to know that beforehand and watch why is that the case. And I think it's just, be, it's not so much the lighting. It's not so much the, the wonders like the children of men. It's nothing like that. It, it, while it is also the lighting, I'll get to that in a second. It's the way that the camera is completely unique. It's, it's really handheld and on a close-up eye-level intimate thing with the characters and, and multiple of the actors were saying how they didn't know if the camera was on them because it's constantly moving and it's right in there with them and it makes it yeah, i mean you got to be on your performance you got to be able to give your lines because there's not a lot of cutting while we see the cut and the edit and the actual filming it's just continuous on top of that it also adds like an almost documentary type feel to it where it doesn't well to the extent with, that we know it's a movie and we know it's being crafted it doesn't feel quite to that extent. It feels a little bit more like real life is being captured in the way that the camera doesn't have these big sweeping crane movements. It doesn't have these huge tracking shots. It just, it's a little handheld camera right in there with everybody else. When the stage things are performed, it's just right there. It's not a big crane or, or downward thing. It's, it's someone sitting in the audience. The way that the camera works makes it feel like you're there watching. And it allows this loose energy to be captured from the actors. And it's fantastic. While also never having really intense lighting. And it just makes it feel very natural. On, on top of that, it, the way that it portrays the characters even better. 
Borden, for example, whenever he, he's always in natural light, very plain, very boring light, very basic, especially in his show. I think it's just like, a, you know, top down lights and that's it. And the camera, there's no tricks. It's, it's just there. It's as literally sitting in the audience, just looking at the stage from a locked off angle. That's it. Whenever Borden is performing his, his act on stage, that's it. But then we go to Angiers and we're on the stage. We're moving in the doors with him. We're going underneath with him. We're in the performance. It feels like you're actually in it. It's exciting. While the other one feels boring. Really portraying the showmanship of it all. So watching it, well, no, this isn't Children of Men. It's not trying to be. That's not the only type of cinematography that's worthy of an Oscar. This really is phenomenal cinematography in the way that they lit things so uniquely and filmed uh, in a way that you normally wouldn't. Now, moving on to some other fun details that I just want to mention here. In that very first, you know, act swinging at the glass when, I forget her name, Angier's wife is drowning. It's actually Christopher Nolan swinging the axe and hitting the glass. Um, and then they, of course, cut to a moment where um, Michael Caine is swinging for the very last time when the glass breaks. But I thought it was awesome that it's Christopher Nolan breaking the glass. Other things is the backstage dressing room type thing that we th- see throughout the film is actually the backstage lot of a real film set. This was made on a $40 million budget, which is actually quite small. So a lot of it just had to be with, well, let's work with what we have. What can we make with what we already do, which kind of leaned into the cinematography and the lighting being so natural and not being so produced. while also just kind of dressing up sets and letting the light come in naturally and using a genuine backstage center in it. It looks fantastic with all those stairs going every which direction. It's great. Another fun detail here, Alfred and Sarah's baby, the little baby is actually Christopher Nolan and Emma Smith's fourth child who was born during production of this film. So that's exciting. This other thing I read online that I just, this is incredible. I can't believe this. Chung Ling Tzu was a stage character created by William Ellsworth Robinson, who was a white man who disguised himself as Chinese to cash in on the audience's enthusiasm for the exotic. This was in the early 1900s. He lived as Chung, never breaking character while in public. So this is something that performers actually did. He died in March of 1918 when a bullet catch trick, of all things, went wrong. And he said, my gosh, I've been shot. Those were both his last words and also the first English words he had spoken on stage in 19 years. And the way that that just relates to the film in so many ways I thought was phenomenal. Last detail here for bench points and then we'll move on. The main character's initials this is probably something we've all noticed, but I, just, I have to point this out. I think every single time I think about it, it's, I, it makes me smile. There are initials. Alfred Borden, Robert Angier spells out Abra as an abracadabra. Also, what a fantastic last line. I, I mean, I don't think there's much meaning to it besides just being like a real good line for the character and driving through the character's personality. I, anyway, Abra. I think that's fun. Fun details. So let's move on to our second and last segment here, Lease and Likes. Let's first talk about my least favorite scene, then we'll get some honorable mentions. My least favorite scene is not so much a scene as it is just like a characteristic. The way that Tesla's assistant, Allie, who's played by Andy Serkis, gives the idea to Angier that they actually built a machine before. They didn't, and it's revealed that they didn't, but they go along with it too easily. I'm, Angier is only there because he's on a wild goose chase that Borden sent him on. So the way that they're just involved in it, willing to go along with it, felt too easy. I don't have a problem with them actually building the machine. I think that's fantastic. 
but being in on the deceit of it initially feels kind of weird to me. So that's my least favorite. Oh, I do have to say, though, I do love the way Andy Serkis plays Ali. I think that's a fantastic performance in the film as well. I just, that, that moment isn't one of my favorites. Some honorable mentions here because this is really hard for me to pick. The first honorable mention is when Sarah asks for the last time, do you love me? And Alfred responds, not today. No. And the way that the score cuts out immediately, right before he says not today, and it just is a gut punch. Fantastic filmmaking right there. The other, other honorable mention is towards the end of the film when Cutter, who's played by Michael Caine, is helping Angier, you know, take the machine away to his shop or whatever it is. And he says, I once told you about a, a sailor who was drowning. And he said, yes, you said it was going home, which is something that Cutter said at his wife's funeral to comfort him. And Cutter says, I was lying. He said it was agony. And I love that Cutter would tell him that, realizing what he's gone through. But Angier's realizing, or, but Angier realizing the agony he had put himself through continually for a hundred times, however many times it was, the heartbreak of it all. I, lo- I love that scene. Never knowing the agony because each time was the first, but also knowing that he had put himself through agony. To, to what end? To what end? Not just in the physical sense that he, that, that person who fell in the tank was no longer living, but the times that he had truly lost his life to that. More times than he has lives to give. Fantastic scene. And that's not even my favorite. I mean, it just keeps going. My one other scene that I love, there, there's two cuts that I love, is one when the very beginning of the film, we're in the timeline where Borden is in prison, where he's being accused, and he starts to read the journal. And then, boom, we get like a, a big cut, and it goes to a train, and we're back in time. It's the first time we get a flashback. Love that cut. The other one is that when uh, Tesla leaves, and Angier's about to check out of the hotel, the hotel, whoever that person is, says, I didn't feel the need to tell him about the box. And he says, what box? And then he goes, boom, and like this horrible score kicks in and shows the box just sitting there in the hotel. Also love that cut. Fantastic editing. All right. With those out of the way, let's get into my actual favorite scene. And my favorite scene is actually where Tesla is warning Angier about his obsession. The way that the scene works, it's edited, performed. The way that it works for the story, it's such a great scene. Have you considered the cost? Price is not an object. Perhaps not, but have you considered the cost? I can recognize an obsession when I see one. I've become... Perhaps not, but have you considered the cost? I can recognize an obsession when I see one. And then Angier's response, well, what about your obsession? He says, I have become their slave, and one day they will destroy me. Literally, what happens to Angier? I also have to mention... The ending, the reveal, even when you know it's coming, is so satisfying. It's so earned. So that is also kind of my favorite. It's even more satisfying when you're watching with someone who hasn't seen it. My wife was watching it with me. She hadn't seen it. So while I was excited to get to the end, it was also exciting to think like, oh my gosh, she's going to see what happens. That was fantastic. So let's get on to the last segment here, Fall In. This is the segment of the podcast where I talk about the messages, the meanings, insights that the film may give me into my life. And talk about how they're worthwhile which was something that was really unique with this film i was excited to try and extract them from this film and then talk about them in one of the bonus features for this film christopher nolan was talking about how he likes creating uh, films and ideas and stories that stick in your head 
his own words, all sorts of thoughts banging around the brains. Which I thought was really interesting, especially because as I was preparing this episode, my wife was sitting next to me after watching the film and she said, this movie is so thought-provoking. Like hours later, she was still thinking about it, which is abnormal for her. But it, it really is thought-provoking, especially the first time you see it. You, you can't stop thinking about it. You want to talk about it. Now I really, more than ever, understand why my friend, Dallin, w- wanted someone to see it after he'd seen it in that film class way back in high school. because it was consuming his mind. But like I mentioned earlier, I, w- I wanted to get a little bit deeper. Besides the story and the twist, is there a particular idea or implication that's also worth remembering? And of course, there's the central theme of obsession and loss. Both Borden and Angier lose their lives more time than they have lives to lose. Borden lives two half-lives before one dies, never getting to fully live the reward of this sacrifice that he has. Angier wastes his life away, his money, trying to figure out the trick of Borden. He wants to ruin his life, but then becomes so obsessed without doing him. I mean, there's this line they're all thinking of when Olivia gives him Borden's journal and says, this won't bring your wife back. And Angier instantly replies, I don't care about my wife, I care about his trick. And then immediately regrets the truth that just came out is that while that is a sad statement in that moment, that is the truth. The obsession has consumed him and he's completely a slave to it now, like Tesla warned. So that's clearly a theme of the film. And while that's great, it doesn't bang around in my brain in the words of Christopher Nolan like that. uh, Yeah, obsession's bad. What next? I mean, it's great. And maybe I should think about it more, but it doesn't really have lasting power for me. So there's these other two ideas that do actually bang around. Ideas about storytelling, especially through film and how that affects us, and even better, those implications into the real world. And let's just start talking about this with the last line of the film from Cutter. Now you're looking for the secret. But you won't find it because, of course, you're not really looking. You don't really want to work it out. You want to be fooled. A motif consistently throughout the film, showmanship, presentation, magic, the idea that the audience needs to be amazed and fooled as part of a good act. That while Borden has a good trick, he doesn't have a good show. Because he's not good at leaning into that foolmanship. That's is that even a word? Here's some two lines to kind of give it across. Cutter talking about it says men dress up simple, sometimes even brutal truths to amaze, to shock. That's what they're doing. That's what these performances are. Or when they're showing the whoever he is, the guy involved in getting the performances, the last hundred performances for Angier, when they're showing him the trick, he says to them, disguise it give them enough reason to doubt it. So clearly that's an idea of the film, but it's expressed really well through Angier when he's talking to Tesla. If people believed what I did on stage, they wouldn't clap, they'd scream. It's interesting to think about how that applies to cinema and filmmaking. We like being fooled. We like the trick of being brought to the story without having to know that it's real. Just like a magic trick, both of them have to be dressed up. It's the difference between a documentary and a narrative film. We've seen remarkable things put to film, and it can be enjoyable because we know it's manufactured, created, it's not real. But while watching the film, if done right, we are in it as if it were real. We gladly suspend our disbelief, but when push comes to shove, we know that it's fake. If we really believed everything to be real, I think the movies would quickly come to an end. Take any war film, for example, or any superhero films that are huge right now. 
I mean, people die. Things are constantly being destroyed. There's destruction and chaos everywhere. If that were our real world that was being captured and not created, it would be full of terrifying destruction and death. And I think that would be genuine reason to scream, not clap. We wouldn't want to see that. We'd want to hide from it. So great. We can all agree that movies are awesome and that seeing them as we suspend our disbelief. Why is that worth remembering? Take Angier's last line. You never understood why we did this. The audience knows the truth. The world is simple. Miserable. So solid all the way through. But if you could fall And you got to see something very special. You really don't know. It was... It was the look on their faces. And that is exactly the magic of movies, is that while we know what we've watched is not real, we can believe in the ideas and the themes and the messages as real. We gain hope, we gain insights into our own life. I mean, this is what the entire segment has been about for the past two years of The Basement Binge, is while we watch these incredible, entertaining things, where is the message? We can believe through filmmaking and through stories that impossible things can happen. Going all the way back to the beginning, Christopher Nolan wants to give us something we haven't seen before. Whereas he says it himself in the book I'm reading about him, I make films that are a huge endorsement of ideas. I make films that are a huge endorsement of the idea that there is more to our world than meets the eye. That is the idea that's banging around in my brain. What do I not see in the world? What impossibilities are actually possible that I've just yet to not see? It's interesting to me. And it's amazing how films can create desires like that to see those things or to have hope for whatever. You you all know what I'm talking about. You've seen that film and you come away with a new understanding about something around you or yourself. You see more than what initially met your eye. It's fantastic. Fantastic film, which I'm, I'm blown away with every time, with the twist, with the storytelling, and even more so now what it has to say about living, living with obsession, but also living with stories and the way that those impact us. Phenomenal film. Great start to Nolan November. Can't wait to get some more. Like I mentioned, next week, the Batman trilogy is coming. Batman Begins, The Dark Knight, The Dark Knight Rises. If you want to give me your input about any of those films, you want to participate in the polls, follow me on social media, at The Basement Binge on Instagram and TikTok, also The Basement Binge on Facebook, if you're on Facebook. All of that linked in the show notes. Also, please review the show on podchaser.com slash the basement binge. Always linked in the show notes. It's very helpful to leave a review on the show. I really, really would appreciate it. If you want a screen pass for any of the films, including the Dark Knight films that are coming up, let me know on social media if I've got any available, which I have two available still this month. I'll share them with you. Anyway, fantastic film. Love the prestige. Can't wait to get to more of Nolan's films in Nolan November. But once again, this is the basement binge. My name is Harrison. 
And that's all for now. Ciao, ciao. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.